And turn with me, please, or listen on now uh, as I read from the book of Romans. This will be uh, my final sermon of the year. Uh, And I will be honest, I had hoped to finish Romans 11, though I realized uh, in the course of preparing the sermon, there was no way really to get to the doxology. And so instead of ending on the doxology, uh, this calendar year will begin the new one uh, with that. But uh, for now, we will look at Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 32. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 32. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture which you have given to your church, which has been reflected upon so profitably by so many through the ages. And we ask you that we would be no different. Would you shed, Holy Spirit, your light upon this passage that it might illumine the hope which you would have cherished in the hearts of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I was stressing last time was that verses 25 through 27 uh, was really the conclusion uh, of the, the argument which is made not only in Romans uh, 9 through 11, but more narrowly Romans chapter 11. Uh, it even reads like that. We have the, word, uh, the words, and so, in verse 26, and then supported by uh, scriptural uh, references. The gist of uh, the argument which was summed up uh, there is that uh, as Israel has been cast off for now, so she will be uh, restored. Uh, And I had hoped to to read this uh, at the end of that sermon, uh, though the sermon was getting uh, a little long. And so I decided not to, but I thought I might read. As many of you know, Matthew Henry's A Way to Pray, I've I've commended it to this congregation over and over again. In his uh, little prayer on missions, Uh, This is what he prays. I think this sums up not only what's said in verse 25 through 27 well, but also the whole of the chapter. Make a special plea for God's ancient covenant people of the Jews, that they may see Jesus as their promised Messiah. Lord of the covenant, our heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Let them look with faith on him whom they have pierced. Let them turn to the Lord so that the veil blinding their hearts may be taken away. Let the branches which are broken off not continue in unbelief. Let them be grafted back into their own olive tree. Though blindness has happened to part of Israel, let the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that the fullness of the Jews may also be realized in this marvelous manner. Let all Israel be saved. That is the hope uh, which which we have been contemplating and which I think Matthew Henry expresses so well and I hope uh, will become the prayer of this church. Also so wonderfully expressed in this book, The Puritan Hope, 
uh, which has been my companion all through uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11. We are nearing the end. We come, well, as I said, we've already seen the conclusion, but, uh, but Paul expands upon what he is saying when he says all Israel will be saved in this way. And so all Israel will be saved. He expands upon that. Or we could say he's summing up and repeating the arguments in verses 28 through 32. And then he rounds it all off uh, in this glorious doxology uh, that we'll briefly touch on this time and then look at in a more detailed way in the new year. The passage which is before us is neatly divided under three headings. The first of which is verses 29 and 28 in which we find a contrast. Concerning the gospel, we begin with verse 28. Concerning the gospel, he says, they are enemies for your sake. But on the other hand, he says, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Who is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of Israel, whose future salvation, whose future and grafting back into the tree he is contemplating. John Murray, I'll have a a lot of short quotes from John Murray. His commentary was very helpful to me. He says, Israel are both enemies and beloved at the same time. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. This is, in essence, the position of the Jew. At one and the same time, both regarded as enemies and beloved. You read that, verse 28, and you have to say, what an interesting way of putting it. But it really does, in light of all that we've seen, it really does seem to sum up things quite nicely. Both sides of the equation. Paul is expressing what we have no doubt felt throughout this exposition and what, even to this moment, I feel in my heart. And that is the tension which exists in the present state of the Jews. On the one hand, Paul is saying, you know, they are regarded as enemies by whom by God. And that and yet, you see, on the other hand, they are beloved for the sake of the promises which he made to the fathers, that is, the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And so this way of putting it, the more you think of it, is a really uh, it is a really good and fitting summary of the tension that we feel and that he is expressing and as we look at both sides of the contrast it is important that we understand the precise force of each side of the contrast on the one hand we see that the jews regarded as a people as enemies is qualified in a twofold way concerning the gospel that's the first qualification Regarding the gospel as it was preached to them and they rejected it so that at present they stand not inside but outside, they are regarded as enemies. We could reframe that a little bit. We could say considering the present state of the gospel dispensation, they are regarded as enemies. This is something that has been repeated uh, over the chapters, chapters 10 and 11. Because of their unbelief, they stand outside. They are regarded as enemies. It's it's just another way of stating the same truth. But there is a second qualification, and it is for your sake. 
It is for your sake, that, and I mean you, and I mean me. It is for our sake that they are regarded enemies concerning the gospel. This is another consideration which has been articulated already. We have seen, uh, not only in Romans 11, but as expressed in the gospels by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew uh, 22, I think it is, that it is by the downfall of Israel that we have come to inherit the kingdom of God. It's been taken from them and given to another people, even to us. So that God now, for the present, regards the Jewish people as enemies, as, con- as concerns the gospel, in order that we might be counted and considered beloved. You see, as concerns the gospel, we are beloved. Why? How did it come about? Well, it came about, Paul says, and Jesus says, through the downfall of Israel. That's how the Gentiles came into this blessing. For the present, God is regarding this people whom he foreknew as enemies in order that we might be saved. And so it is for our sakes and for our salvation, even as the Apostle Paul Expressed in verse 12, if their fall is riches to the world. But the same is true of the word beloved on the other side of the contrast. That is, it is double qualified. You see, they're they're enemies in one sense, in this double sense, but they're also beloved in this double sense. The first is concerning the election. The election here does not mean what it meant earlier in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, when he spoke of a remnant that is saved according to grace. No, he's not talking about the remnant here. It means rather what it did. The election means what it did in verse 2, when he spoke of his people whom he foreknew. Another John Murray quote, he says, it is theocratic election. God's choice of this nation and this people which was repeatedly expressed in the Old Testament. Concerning this, they are beloved. Rejected because they reject the gospel, but in a more ultimate and broader historical sense, they are beloved because foreknown. And again, that's the leading thought of the chapter. God has not cast off his people whom he has foreknown. Concerning election, beloved. But the second qualifying statement is for the sake of the fathers. And this is something that the Lord expresses throughout the Old Testament. He says, you know, for your own sake, I ought to just cast you off because you're so unbelieving. But the only reason I abide with you at all is for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that that same line of argument. Well, if I could put it this way, it's still compelling to God. God is still compelled uh, to a measure of faithfulness to the Jews as a people in light of what he promised to the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why he hasn't and that's why he won't forsake them in an ultimate sense, even though they have rejected him. As concerns the gospel forsaken, but as concerns election And the promises made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, beloved, 
These are clearly relative terms, if I could put it that way. As they express a contrast, so they are to be taken in a relative sense. Neither entirely considered as enemies, nor entirely considered as beloved, but both at the same time. And so that uh, reminds me of something that I have to remind myself of and that I've reminded you of as recently as Romans chapter 10. And that is, it is important to see, and Paul is certainly forcing us to see, that two things can be true at the same time. In other words, the temptation and the danger that faces the church in every age, and certainly our age is no different, is that we tend to be too one-sided in our thinking. It's either this or that. We are driven to the extremes. They are enemies, and then we camp out there, and we fail to see the other side. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Because when we do that, we often miss a very important point or principle that the Lord would wish us to believe. And so we need to see this, the apostle is telling us. That is, the Jews at present stand outside. That does not preclude their coming back in. Why? Well, because while their standing outside can be explained in this way, as concerning the gospel which they have rejected, they stand outside. That is not the only consideration. There is also this. There is election. There is the promises which God made to the fathers and so on. And that is what ultimately makes us feel confident about their coming back in. Another way that I could make this point, and you see I'm trying to apply it, is to say that the danger for the church in every age is that we tend to think of salvation too exclusively in terms of ourselves. Well, of course, for our sakes, in terms of the salvation that I enjoy and that you enjoy, where we are concerned, they are enemies. They stand outside. But don't forget about this, Paul says. Salvation is bigger than you and it's bigger than this church and it's even bigger than this present age. Have we forgotten about the election? Have we forgotten about the fathers? Have we forgotten about the whole of the Old Testament? Not only that, you see, that's looking back, but have we forgotten about the future. You see, the whole question of time comes in here. The church is called to look back and to consider what God was doing in the Old Testament. Also what God is doing at the present, but, but then to remember that God's work isn't finished. And that, well, he's going to do more than he's presently done in the future. And so the whole question of time comes in here. We tend, I am saying, to think too exclusively in terms of ourselves and our own day. And we forget the past. And we forget the future. But go on with this thought in verse 29. Paul you see expands the second side. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying concerning election. They're beloved for the father's sake. Why? Well because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He means those gifts and calling uh, expressed to the father's. In the Old Testament and spoken of uh, earlier in Romans chapter nine. 
verses 4 and 5, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers. That's what he's referring to. And these uh, things, the gifts and the calling, are such that they cannot be revoked. That's the point of verse 29. Why? Why can they not be revoked? Is it because the Jews are inherently such a wonderful and a special people? No, that isn't the argument. The argument is this. Because it was God himself who made these promises. It was God himself who pledged uh, these things to Abraham and to the patriarchs. Here's another John Murray quote. These are the privileges and prerogatives of Israel. And involved in those privileges and prerogatives and those promises which were made is the very character of God. Can God go back on his word? Can he revoke what he has promised and made sure? The answer is he cannot. As God himself made Certain promises to Abraham concerning his descendants, so he is going to keep them. And so this simply brings us back to what was said in verse 24 of chapter 11. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? That is given their relation to Abraham given their natural place in the tree, given what we find in the Old Testament. Considered from the standpoint of the gospel, it is true, it seems unlikely that the Jews should ever again have a place in the tree. But considered from the standpoint of their natural place in the tree and God's purpose in choosing Abraham as the root from which this people should spring, it seems very likely indeed. And when you take into account what is said here in verses 28 and 29, we see not only that it is possible, verse 23, and that it is even probable, verse 22, or excuse me, verse 24, but we could go even further and say what Paul is actually saying in verses 28 and 29 is that it is impossible It is impossible that those who were cast off should forever be cast off. Why is it impossible? It is impossible not from the standpoint of what is true of them. What is true of them is they've rejected the gospel. It is impossible solely on account of election. It is impossible from the standpoint of the gifts and the calling of God, all of which are irrevocable. In other words, if you look at it like this, God didn't make these promises to Abraham and to his descendants and then decide later on that he regretted doing so. That isn't what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to another people. He isn't saying, you know, I wish I had never done this. I wish I had never wasted my time with you. No, if you read the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but the the Old Testament. You will find from the earliest days and then expressed over and over and over again in the prophets that God in choosing them on account of what he promised to the fathers knew very well they were going to disobey. And he even told them by the prophets beginning with Moses in the Pentateuch how he was going to deal with them when they did. He was going to bring judgment. 
And when you read the Old Testament, you see judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment until this final climactic judgment occurs in the New Testament when Jesus Christ comes to his own and they received him not and they are blinded. And now to this day, Paul says, the veil lies over their heart. Why? Because God has blinded them. That is the ultimate form of judgment, this side of glory. He's given them over completely as a people to unbelief. Let me just say again, God anticipated this, even as he chose them and set them apart. And he, he told them over and over again, this is what's going to happen. And when this happens, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to someone else. Paul has quoted passages from the Old Testament where we see that, especially in chapter 10. But let us not forget, and I wonder if sometimes we do forget, and this is where the Puritan hope has been so helpful to me, that those same prophets also predicted Israel's restoration. They predicted her fall. She would stumble over the the rock of offense And it would be marvelous in our eyes. It was the Lord's doing. Yes, they predicted her downfall. But they also predicted her restoration. And is that not what the Apostle Paul is contemplating here? I'm not saying that Israel will be restored to the land and the temple and all of that. Don't hear me saying that. I'm saying that as she was once called his people, so they will be called that again. How? By coming into the church. Let me state that as clearly as I can. But what of all these promises of restoration that we find in the Old Testament? Are we to just get rid of those? Or do we see perhaps that the Apostle Paul is anticipating the realization of those very promises pledged to this people in the Old Covenant? Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, look at these great and rich promises to these people in the Old Testament. Can you say that they have been fulfilled hitherto in the Christian church? You cannot. But that brings me to the next point, and that is a comparison which he makes in verses 30 and 31. Understand it in this way. Her present rejection, her future restoration. What happened to you, he says, verse 30, will happen to them, verse 31. For as you, he's speaking to Gentiles, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through there, that is Israel's disobedience, that's the one side, even so these, that is Israel, have now been disobedient that through mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. It's a wonderful argument. If you want to contemplate what happened to them, or to you rather, No, no, let me try that again. If you want to contemplate what the Apostle Paul is saying will happen to them, you need to think of what has happened to you. There it is. It's a wonderful argument. It's a compelling argument. And we notice, I know it's a comparison. Let me just say something about the words themselves. There is a contrast in this comparison, and it is a contrast between disobedience stated three times and mercy stated three times in verses 30 through 32. Considered as recipients of salvation, those who were disobedient but found mercy. That's what salvation is. A disobedient people finding mercy. Considered as recipients of salvation, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. No difference. 
Again, notice how the argument is calculated to humble the Gentile who is saved already, even as he contemplates Israel's future salvation. The Gentile is, is, is what? In the kingdom of God. He's not someone who has a right to a place in the kingdom. He has no natural place there. And yet the amazing thing is this. He was shown mercy. A Gentile who was saved is one who was shown mercy. That is the only explanation. The only ultimate explanation, I should say. True enough, Paul says, it is through Israel's disobedience that God has shown mercy to us. But just as soon as you say that, you say, you know, the, the, the Jews are disobedient and so I was shown mercy. Just as soon as you say that, you're, you're entitled to say that. But don't forget about your own disobedience. And that's really the leading thought. And so the point is, not because they were disobedient and you were not that you were shown mercy. No, it was even as you were disobedient along with the Jew that God in his mercy saved you. Look again at what he says in verse 30. You were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. The leading thought is not theirs, but your disobedience. The emphasis falls on God's mercy, even as we were disobedient. And that is always how salvation is contemplated in scripture, not as man's doing, but God's. It was even as we were dead in trespasses and sin, Paul says, that God saved us and showed mercy to us as undeserving sinners. Salvation is God's doing for man what he could not do for himself on account of sin and giving him that which he does not deserve. Remember Romans chapter nine, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Or we find uh, the argument uh, later on. That's verse 18, verse 22. What if God, Romans chapter 9, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. What is God demonstrating when he saves us? He's demonstrating his mercy. Having highlighted the disobedience of man, whether considered as a Jew or a Gentile, the riches of God's mercy appear in saving us. There's no other explanation. And yet, it is clear as well how the Jew and the Gentile Again, I'm borrowing from Murray here how the Jew and the Gentile play off each other in the unfolding of God's plan. What you find in the Bible is that the Jew is shown mercy first in the Old Covenant, not the Gentile. The Gentiles stand afar off. They stand outside. It's the Jews who enjoy the mercy of God. And, and yet, because of Jewish disobedience, what we find is that they stumble, they fall and in the new covenant, the Gentile receives and obtains mercy. And so now the Gentile who was afar off stands in the position of the Jew in the old covenant. It is the Jew who stands in position of the Gentile in the old covenant as those who are standing outside. The Jew is now in the position that you were in before. You see, that's part of the argument as well. 
But here's the amazing thing the apostle says. Verse 31. That just as through their disobedience we were shown mercy, so through mercy shown to us they will obtain mercy. It isn't through the Gentiles' downfall that Israel will receive mercy. No, the thought here now is something different. The Jews who were cast off will be brought back in. Not to the exclusion of Gentiles, but it it is an argument uh, of addition. Though it was the downfall of the Jew that led to the inclusion of the Gentile, it is not the downfall of the Gentile that will lead to the Jews' inclusion. Thank God. Can you not say with me, thank God for that? But rather, God will show mercy to the Jew by showing mercy to us. That's how he's going to save uh, save them. That's how he's going to make them jealous. By saving so many of us that they cannot help but notice that God is showing his favor to a people that were once far off, even as he has taken it from them. And so they will be provoked to jealousy and they will see at last. Their blindness will end. That is the thought which is expressed already In verses 12 and 15, I'll just read verse 15 of chapter 11. For if their being cast away is the the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I'll just read one quote from the Puritan Hope. One of the Puritan fathers said this. The casting off of the Jews was our calling, but the calling of the Jews shall not be our casting off, but our greater enrichment in grace. Let me come now to the last, the third and the last point. And that is God's higher purpose in Israel's disobedience, or we could simply speak of the divine procedure in saving man. We find this in verse 32. Let me read that. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Again, we find now for the third time in these verses, the contrast between disobedience and mercy. But here he is speaking more broadly. This is something Paul says that God always does. Explaining his procedure with both groups of people, both Jews and Gentiles. What he does is this. First, he commits them all to disobedience. And then or that he has mercy on all. First, he commits to sin. Then he shows mercy. Now, the first thing I would notice is the difficulty we have over the word all. He commits all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. A similar difficulty we find in verse 26. All Israel will be saved. But there really should be no difficulty here if you've been following the gist of the argument. Here, the Apostle Paul is pointing to the divine procedure with respect to both groups, Jews and Gentiles. And his point in using the word all here is to say his procedure is the same with both groups. It's exactly the same. It's the same with everyone. That's another way you could make this point or or use the word all here. It's not something, in other words, he doesn't just commit the Gentile to disobedience in in order that he might show him mercy. No, it's something that he does with the Jew as well. It's something he does with all, with everyone. And so the argument becomes... What he did with the Gentiles, he's going to do with the Jews. Again, that's what we saw in verses 30 and 31. Now he sums it up in verse 32. What did he do with the Gentiles that he's going to do with the Jews? Well, the first thing he does, and note it is God who does this, 
He shuts them up in the prison house of sin and he leaves them there. We find a similar thought, by the way, or, or perhaps the same thought in, in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe that the thought of sin as a prison house or a prison, it's a prison cell. Man in sin is in bondage. And he has no one to blame but himself. But the thought is that, well, God puts him there. He, he, in other words, he allows him. He allows him to go on in his sin. He allows sin in its uh, binding tendencies or its tendency to, to, to bind us to itself. He allows sin to run its course in our lives so that the sinfulness of sin will appear. To us, So that it will appear how sinful man really is and just how unable man, whether considered as Jew or Gentile, is to save himself. And so look at man. There he is shut up in the prison house of his own sin. He has no hope of breaking free unless God is merciful to him. And that is exactly what God wishes for man to see that. But for his mercy shown to us, there's no hope for man. The trouble with man, as you know, always is pride. We've already seen that in chapter 11. We find that through all of scripture and in all of our life. Trouble with man is always pride. And if God gave man even the slightest opportunity to take the credit for his own salvation, he would. And so this is why God does this. He allows things, whether you think of individuals or of nations or even periods of history. He allows things to become very desperate. Seemingly hopeless. And then he intervenes. He shuts man up in the prison house of sin. In order that he might show mercy. You see that's the mind. Of God that soon we will praise. In the doxology. And wonder at. And that's what God did with the Gentiles. Now just think of the Gentiles in the first century. Think of the descriptions we find of them throughout the epistles. And, and you ask yourself, was, was, was man ever as desperately wicked as he was the Gentile world in the first century? You can read your history or you can read your Bibles. Read what Paul says about them in Romans chapter 1. Man in bondage to sin. Man under the wrath and the judgment of God. And you would have thought that there was no hope for them. That they were too far gone. And yet, look here, in the first century, this is what God was doing to the Gentile world. It was just as the darkness grew to unimaginable depths that the light of God's mercy began to shine forth in all the world. The world was never so bad as it was in the first century. And yet, look what God did. He shut man up in the prison house of sin only to give him a glorious liberty by the gospel. God saved these poor, desperately wicked, desperately sinful Gentiles in the first century, even as they appeared as wicked as anyone ever had or has. And do you see the Apostle Paul is saying we could just wonder at that thought. And in many ways, the whole of the New Testament is just Paul, certainly in his epistles, wondering at that thought. But the thought here is. Even as God did that with the Jews in the first century, so he can do it again. So he can do it again. Uh, sorry, the Gentiles in the first century. Even as he did it with the Gentiles in the first century, so he can do it again with the Jews at some future date. Tell me, does anyone 
in the whole world today seem less likely to be saved than the Jews? Is there anyone in all the world less interested in Christianity? And is anyone of all people more deserving of God's judgment seeing that? Well, he came to them and yet they rejected him. And so it would seem, whether from the vantage point of the first or the 21st century, that with respect to this people, all hope is lost. Oh, but don't forget this, Paul is saying. What God did with you, he can do with them. Don't forget what God did for you. And do you think that he can't do it for them, they whom he once called his people? Do you not see he is doing to them at present what he once did to us, namely shutting them up in their own disobedience, making them appear as helpless and as hopeless as any people ever did or could? Only that in due time he might appear to them as their deliverer and as the God of all mercy. Here again, we remember the earlier arguments, Romans chapter five, verses 20 and 21. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or chapter nine, verse 22 and following, which I read earlier. The thought which we have when we consider this. Is that it's just like God to do this. This isn't something that man would do. But this is something that God would do. And practically speaking. As I try to round off now my message. And I'm not talking about Jews anymore. Just the divine procedure. Since it's not limited to them. It includes all. You see this is what God did with us. It's what he's going to do with them. It's what he's always doing. Let me say practically. That this is one of the most encouraging thoughts. In all the world. It's it's encouragement to a discouraged Christian in the 21st century. He looks around him and he says, look how bad things have gotten. You know, I see how bad they were in the first century, but, but I doubt they were any worse then than they are now. How desperately lost our country has become. How desperately wicked. There's no hope for America. There's no hope for the world. An encouraging thought for discouraged Christians. Read your history and you will see. This thought confirmed over and over and over that just as things appeared to be most hopeless, God intervenes. I want to read something from the opening of Dalimore's uh, biography of Whitfield. You know, we read about these mighty works of the spirit and we think, well, things were so wonderful back then. Of course, that happened. Listen to how he opens for the past 30 years. Numerous evangelical people have been saying there can never be another revival. The times are too evil. Sin is is now too rampant. We are in the midst of apostasy and the days of revival are gone forever. The history of the 18th century revival entirely contradicts that view. It demonstrates that true revival is the work of God, not man, of God who is not limited by such circumstances as the extent of human sin or the the degree of mankind's unbelief. In the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of England was foul. With moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was amidst such conditions, conditions remarkably similar to those of the English speaking world today, that God arose in the mighty exercise of his power, which became the 18th century revival. Now, I'm saying that's what God did in the 18th century. That's what God did in the first century. And I'm saying that, well, God can do it again. I'm not a prophet. I don't know if he will or when he will. I'm only saying that he can. 
And as this is my final sermon of the year, I wish to end on that note, a note of hope. But I also want to ask this. Where does this leave us? Very briefly, it leaves us with this note of praise. Verses 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him. That is, it leaves us extolling God's goodness, his mercy, marveling at his glorious purpose in saving us. And even as he saved us so he can save others, can he not? Who would have thought of it? Who would have thought of God showing mercy in this way? Who could have conceived of this but the divine mind? And who would have ever known it had he not revealed it to us? Oh, let us praise God, beloved. For there is nothing else to do, having received his mercy, not to boast, but to praise. Oh, who is like him? Who else is powerful to save rich in mercy to sinners? But him, God, the eternal, the almighty, verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. There really is something inestimably wonderful, though. In the phrase that he utters just before that doxology, don't lose sight of it, that he might have mercy, that he might have mercy. Imagine that, a holy God having mercy on undeserving sinners, even as we ourselves were. That is the whole of the gospel summed up in one phrase, that he might have mercy. If that doesn't make you praise him, well, then I say nothing will. Amen. And let us come to the table together.